Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast Network. This week's show is brought to you by Avatar 2. I'm James Cameron, and I made you wait 12 years for this lousy sequel. You know, a Twitter chum recently asked me if it wasn't old news to pick on Saturday Night Live. I said no, it wasn't, and here's why. I think so many people, including me, grew up watching SNL. It's part of the pop culture fabric, and it's given us so many great memories, big laughs over the years. That making copies guy. Remember Debbie Downer? Wah, wah. This one's a particular favorite of mine. Colon blow cereal. What about It's Pat? Oh, wait, you can't make that character today. But still, we laughed at the time. And, of course, too many comedy superstars came out of that show to count. Eddie Murphy, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, you know the drill. Well, the show today doesn't resemble the one we grew up watching. You know, listen, times change, but it's now more like propaganda, like Stephen Colbert's late-night show. It's live, sure, and a lot of more, more and more costume changes than your typical late-night program. But other than that, they're kind of identical. So when we had that Supreme Court leak and it suggests that Roe v. Wade may be overturned in the near future, you knew exactly what SNL would do. And they didn't disappoint by disappointing anyone expecting something funny or insightful. Now, here's just part of the sketch in question. This was the cold open, the first sketch of the night. Because I like Right on Hollywood listeners, and I don't want to subject you to any more of this than I had to suffer. And trust me, this is suffering. What if we get a donkey drunk and we dress it up in her husband's clothes? Then the next morning she's like, uh, did I just have sex with a donkey? And the whole town's waiting outside like, uh, you burnt. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. But what if the donkey gets her pregnant and then we'd legally have to protect the fetus? And if the half-donkey Childy is a man, it could become king. Ah, the prophecy! <laughs> but let's be careful. The worst thing that could happen if is someone leaks this conversation to the town crier. Uh, knock, knock. Just kidding, we don't have doors. Uh, anywho, 
the sheriff throw left-handed children into the river, and I couldn't help but overhear you talking about a new law. Uh-oh, woman hear ideas and it make her think, why I no have those? Yeah, something like that. So, I have a couple questions. Careful, Margaret. Don't make us make another hole in your skull so your brain can breathe. Right. I was just wondering, since I'm almost at the childbearing age of 12, shouldn't women have the right to choose since having a baby means, like, a 50% chance of dying? Yes, but that's why we're also offering maternity leave. When you're done with 20 years of continuous maternity, you can leave. <laughs> shouldn't we at least make exceptions? You know, typically, comedy demands surprise and misdirection, two key factors. And good luck finding either of those in the sketch. I think one of the things that amazed me about it was how many progressive tropes they jammed in into a six-minute sketch. Women as victims, states' rights are wrong, conservatives are from the 13th century, etc., etc. It's a marvel of efficiency. It's not funny, but it is efficient. But I don't think funny is the point these days. Naturally, major, major news outlets picked up on this sketch and amplified it, because that's what they do. It shows you their bias. Had SNL mocked the pro-choice movement and kind of torched those protesting outside the homes of Supreme Court justices, you wouldn't see those stories, uh, you know, splashed across your different websites and platforms. You might get a few fact checks, though, right? But SNL keeps marching on. The show goes on and on. There's no stopping it. The ratings aren't huge, but they're good enough to keep the lights on for sure. The live audience this week, I don't know what they're feeding them or giving them, but they clap like seals for every talking point they get they get delivered. You know, well, ex-fans like me remember what the show used to be. Funny, unpredictable, irreverent, bold, and best of all, bipartisan. Or the exact opposite of what SNL is today. Live from New York, it's... Who cares, really? You're listening to my dad's podcast. He cried like a baby watching Snoopy come home. This week's Toto's take is Wolf. Jack Nicholson stars in this more adult-minded take on the werewolf genre. No, it's not mature in that way. It's just more sophisticated, more for the sophisticated mind, if you will. Now, Jack plays a literary agent who's being forced out of his company by a younger, hungrier colleague. That's James Spader in full jerk mode and when it comes to being a jerk on screen, nobody does it better, and that's a compliment. Now, Jack's character has a secret, though. Maybe even you call it a secret weapon. A wolf bit him recently, and suddenly his milk toast ways are fading, and his hairline is unreceding. That's just part of the changes going on with him. It's a pretty smart take on the werewolf story, and that's before a, let's face it, she's too young for him, Michelle Pfeiffer enters the, enter the screen as the love interest. Now, this is director Mike Nichols, and he's trying horror. I think this might have been his first time. You know, good for him. I love when big-time directors do dabble in horror, but I don't think it was a perfect fit here. The wolf scenes are a little bit silly sometimes. There's lots of slow motion, and I think the FX, even though this is the mid-'90s, weren't that good. I actually think they should have underplayed the genre elements and really kind of went with the story, sort of the emotional werewolf within and not the physical werewolf. That might have been a smarter play, but... Overall, the story still works. You also get Jack showing his fangs, and there's nothing better than that. I'm a big uh, Witches of Eastwick fan. It's one of the most underrated films, I think, in the last 30, 40 years. And uh, this has a little element of that in as well. And just so you know, when you're watching this film, Michelle Pfeiffer turned down the role repeatedly. 
until they beefed up the screenplay to make her more than just the girl. And I think it works, and I agree with what she did because she's too good to play the girl. And those girl roles are kind of, oh, they're inconsequential. I think uh, screenwriters should do better in general. Now, Wolf wasn't a huge hit in theaters. I think it made about $65 million domestically. It's not Jack Nicholson's best performance by any stretch of the imagination, but you know what? It's interesting, it's a cultural artifact, and it's definitely worth a fresh look. And Hulu is streaming it right now to help make that happen. This week's guest needs no introduction, but I think that'd be rude, right? Dave Rubin is one of the most important and impactful voices in the culture wars right now. He's a recovering liberal, maybe call him a classical liberal, as he often does, kind of categorize himself, and he sees what's happening in the world around us, and he wants us to start fighting back. Not violently, culturally speaking, of course. His new book is Don't Burn This Country, and it couldn't be more timely or helpful. It's Dave telling us what every American can do to battle the woke forces eager to reinvent this country. Well, not on Dave's watch. The brick book brings his wit and insight into the issues of the day. And what I liked about it the best is that he injects some really interesting historical perspectives into what he's sharing to make it both meaty and meaningful. This is not just a flippant book. This is good stuff. And of course, we know that Dave is also the host of the Rubin Report, one of the best podcasts around. I know it's a video. It's a podcast. I'd listen to the podcast version just the way it works for me, but both are obviously effective. And that show really gives voice to the people who have the wisdom to arm us in these culture wars. Again, not speaking physically, this is, <laughs> this is a different kind of battle, but it is important. It's definitely one of my go-to podcasts. And I have to say, selfishly, what a treat it is to have Dave Rubin on Right on Hollywood. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Dave, welcome to the show. I love the book's title, even if it's a little bit too on the nose, given the tenor of the <laughs> times, but... Reading it, to me, it felt almost like a, an owner's manual for modern living, that you really, it isn't just advice, it isn't just humor, it really is sort of how do you behave in this, in this world today. Is that a fair assessment? Thanks, yeah, it's good to be with you, and yeah, that is a fair assessment. I wanted it to be a little bit of all of those things. We sort of originally had the idea that it would kind of be a how-to book, but then, you know, I do throw in some funny stuff in there, and I give a little bit of political philosophy and a little bit of a little bit of history and a little bit of personal anecdotes and things. Uh, but really the, the idea is there is a way to live a hopefully or roughly complete life right now that can be as rewarding as the life that most of us want to live. It, it can be a little difficult to find because of our political polarization. And as you said, the, the title of the book might be a little too on the nose, <laughs> especially in light of what's happening the last couple of days with this, uh, uh, you know, seemingly uh, potential abortion decision. But uh, there are ways to flourish and to not just survive. I think a lot of us have been surviving over the last couple of years, especially with COVID and lockdowns and all that, but really to thrive and do all the things that you want to do and accomplish all the things that you want to accomplish. And that really is the point of the book. And it's a real positive book, too. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to complain about, a lot to note, but uh, the overall theme is more optimistic. And one of the things that, that I think you drill into, which I think is important, is that this whole woke culture is a, a wonderful chance to reach across the aisle, and, I, and there are so few opportunities to do so, but it's not just a rock-ribbed conservative who doesn't feel comfortable with this lifestyle. It is people on the left, it is people on, in center sort of minded folk who do as well. Can you maybe expand on that a little bit and, and, and share how we can maybe use that to you know, have more people get along together? 
Sure. Well, look, in a lot of ways, I'm sort of a very unlikely conservative and I don't like to get too caught up in the labels. Mm, and, you know, my fair. first book, Don't Burn This Book, was a defense of classical liberalism. And, you know, if this was still 1965 America, I'd probably still be considered a liberal in that sense, at least mostly a liberal in a sort of JFK sense. But things change over time and words and their meanings, unfortunately, do change over time, too. And also, you know, depending on what country you're in, a liberal in the UK is different than a liberal in America. And, you know, conservative at the moment, I would say, is sort of the broad swath of people from old school liberals to libertarians to more traditional, maybe religious conservatives and ex-lefties, the whole broad set of people who, at least at the moment, are sort of anti-woke. And that really is the opportunity of the book. And I think that's actually the opportunity of America. If you believe in the individual, if you believe in laissez-faire capitalism and limited government, and you believe in human ingenuity and, and the idea that you yourself know, or at least have the best chance to figure out the best way to live the best life that you can, then, then it's all of us against the woke at the moment. And by the woke, I mean the set of people who have decided that collectivism based on economics, but more dangerously based on identity, whether it's racial identity or sexual identity or gender identity, are the things that fully define you. And that, in many ways, is the most anti-human uh, political movement that certainly has existed probably in our lifetimes. And, and that's what we're up against right now. So it's not to say that, you know, we all, let's say, that are fighting the woke all agree on a lot of things. I mean, we don't. There's plenty of things that we can argue about, whether it's quite literally what's happening right now in terms of abortion or whether it's taxes or whether it's states' rights or how to regulate big tech or not regulate big tech. We can argue about all those things, but those are sort of ancillary to we've got to save America first. We have to conserve the thing that we've had for 250 years that until about three years ago, we thought we were just going to have by default. We thought that the, the door had closed and we were kind of good to go. And then we can argue about the marginal issues. Well, now it's fairly obvious that the house is on fire and a whole bunch of us that maybe wouldn't have consider, uh, considered ourselves allies before have to just put, put aside some of the stuff and say, hey, let's fix this thing. And then afterwards, we can hash out what our differences are and see if we can work all that stuff out. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I think that people generally on the right, and I'm using that kind of loosely, have rallied around folks like Ricky Gervais. And he is a pretty progressive fellow. I think he would probably disagree with everything that I would do about voting voting issues or, mm. or certain specific topics. But he is such an unabashed defender of free speech that if you go to a Breitbart or a Daily Wire or, or venues like that, they'll be trumpeting him. They'll be praising him. And it, again, it's because the bigger issue is at play. And I think that's important. Uh, you you couldn't have scored any more points with me by using a, an alien reference in your book and mentioning how the, the uh, our, our robot friend, Ash, in the first Alien, how he admired the creature. He admired his its strength, its power, how unrelenting it is. And you, you kind of mentioned that in a way you, you admire that in the woke mindset, how powerful it is. But how did it get that power if it just represents such a few number of people? Because, again, if you look at polling, if you look at who really believes this, it's a fraction. And yet they seem to control the culture, the narrative in such powerful ways. Yeah, it's a good question because it's been very hard to quantify how many of these people really exist, how they seemingly got so much power in media and throughout our institutions, and, and how they've been able to destroy so much. And that's why I tell the story of Ash, because, you know, Ash at the beginning of the original 1977 Alien 
you you don't know that he's a robot. He's just the, mm-hmm. you know, he's the medical officer on the ship. And you later find out that he's a robot, but he has this very powerful scene with Sigourney Weaver where they're basically, uh, you know, the, the alien's been running around the ship killing everybody. And he's talking about how he admires it because it's sort of the perfect organism. It does what it wants to do and it's remorseless about it. And it's accomplishing all of these things. And he may not like what it's accomplishing and she certainly doesn't like what it's accomplishing, but it's going out and doing it. And, and there's, in his estimation, there's something to be admired about that. So while I do not admire any of the things that the woke have accomplished and the, the destruction that they have wrought across society, you have to give the devil his due. You have to say, man, these people really have done something. And regardless of whether their numbers are tiny or whether they're marginal or whether it's half of us or, or 75% of all of us, they've done a lot. They've done a lot. It's been a lot of bad, but they have done it. And I think until you acknowledge that, you really can't fight it properly. So I think there's a lot of ways that they've been able to do so much destruction. I think, I think the most perverse thing that they've done is they got in using liberalism against itself. You know, the, the progressive movement, they got in by just screaming liberal slogans, but louder mm-hmm. and calling everybody who was against them a bigot and a racist and transphobe and everything else. And I think the liberals at first sort of thought, oh, these are the effective liberals. Like these are the exciting ones and they have righteous indignation and they're, they're sort of like a sexier version of a liberal. And unfortunately, what quickly happened is the, re- the good liberals, the people who were for tolerance and diversity in a true sense and an open exchange of ideas, they folded very quickly. I mean, liberalism, which if you, think, you know, if you think of everything that operates in a hierarchy, liberalism sort of puts tolerance at the highest pinnacle of that hierarchy, at the, at the pinnacle of that triangle. And if you put tolerance above all else, well, you're going to start tolerating intolerance. This is Karl Popper's uh, The Paradox of Tolerance. And if, if once you tolerate intolerance, man, you don't have much to stand on. And I think that's what's happened to the modern liberal. That's what's happened to the Democratic Party, which is why you mentioned a guy like Ricky Gervais. It's why a guy like Rich, Ricky Gervais or a guy like Bill Maher or Dave Chappelle or Joe Rogan, they all sound like conservatives these days uh, because they're defending liberal principles that have nothing to do with the woke progressive agenda that's completely decimated the Democrat Party. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, the fact that there are, I guess you'd say, old school liberals like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, who have kind of joined the fight alongside you and others. And I'm sure they've taken a tremendous beating, either professionally or maybe on social media. Uh, But are you surprised we're not seeing more voices like that, more people who say, listen, I am left of center, but I just I've seen enough. Or do you think that wave is coming? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I'm not sure that I'm surprised that we haven't seen more because we've seen a certain amount move. You know, I, I was sort of one of the first, at least in a Gen X sense of why I left the left. I don't mm-hmm. think I was the first. I mean, Ronald Reagan said in, you know, 1978 or so, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. There's a long line of people that were once lefties that, you know, sort of shifted right or became a little more conservative. And of course, the, the old adage is that if you're not liberal in your 20s, you don't have a heart. And if you're not conservative in your 30s, you don't have a brain. Um, you know, I, there are guys, look, a guy like Glenn Greenwald, who I think has moved a long way and has really realized so many things uh, that were the reverse of what he used to believe. You know, this is a guy who was basically calling me a racist all the time on Twitter five years ago. And now he just repeats a lot of the things that I'm saying. Um, and, I, and I respect most of the work that he's doing. I absolutely have political disagreements with him for sure. But he's, I think, realizing that the only way we return to something that would be 
the liberalism that he cares about would be by getting away from these big, powerful structures. In his mind, he finds the big, powerful structures to be, say, the security state or the military-industrial complex. Um, you know, for me, it's intrusive government into your personal daily life and a giant machine that wants to tax the hell out of you and, you know, regulate your business and all sorts of those things. So what we're roughly agreeing on, though, is that you, you basically want to live a life that is free of government or, or any sort of centralized intrusion. And that's very counter to the modern left, which really loves the sort of state power to tell you what to do, when you can go to work, whether you should be locked down, whether you should be injected with something, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I appreciate him embracing your values, but I also think an apology is in order. And I, I laughed. It was, it was sort of a <laughs> sort of a dark laugh because it, it, it's sort of comical in a way that people are able to kind of hurl that white supremacist racist label at anyone without proof at any time and suffer zero consequences. I hope he, maybe he can reconsider some of those things. I, you well, I don't know that he, he definitely has called me a racist. I don't know about a white supremacist, but you know, the apology thing, it's interesting because you know, you kind of want them to come one day when you see, when you're sort of ahead of somebody in, in a certain evolution and then, you know, they're calling you all these names and then next thing you know, it's two years later and they've sort of adopted all your positions. It's nice to sit there, you know, at the, at the mailbox going, man, is the card in the mailbox today? And <laughs> does it come with chocolate? The apology usually doesn't come. I've actually had a few people over the years that used to go after me a lot that have come around, say, closer to my positions that have said, you know, privately to me, hey, maybe I shouldn't have done that or whatever. And that's that's always uh, it's always nice to hear, but it's not really expected. And that's just sort of the nature maybe of our political game or social media or something. Yeah, that is interesting, though. But also the private apology is far more effective than the public mea culpa, which is often kind of part of the apology tour. You, you sure. mentioned comedians before, Joe Rogan, Ricky Gervais. I'm more surprised and even astounded by other comedians, John Stewart, Mark Maron, Stephen Colbert, who have either denied cancel culture exists embraced it or just say, hey, no big deal. We need to be accountable for our jokes now. You're a comedian. You've been working at this for a while. I, you know, I can't get into their mind and, th and know what they're thinking. Why do you think they're expressing thoughts like that? I mean, they can express any thought, but you think that a comedian of all people would be just outraged by the woke culture and, and what it's doing to their profession, but they don't seem to be that way. No, it's pretty depressing, man. I mean, I can tell you after doing the first leg of my tour for this book where I'm mostly in comedy clubs and we've sold out all these shows and I'm doing a lot of politically incorrect stuff and I'm messing with the crowd and I have no sacred cows and we're having a blast there and, and the shows have been awesome. People want comedy again. They want to laugh again. They want to be politically incorrect. They want to make fun of the wokesters and all of this nonsense. Uh, the one that's most disappointing, I would say, is Jon Stewart because Jon Stewart, he held for 20 years in America you know, he sort of had the banner of liberalism and he was the guy that, remember, they would always say when The Daily Show was hot, more young Americans get their news from The Daily Show than anywhere else. I don't know that that was ever actually true, but it was just something that was said all the time. And then Jon Stewart made an, a very strange pivot. He sort of dipped out for the four years that Trump was president uh, and then he let Trevor Noah take over the show and The Daily Show is now sort of utterly irrelevant. Nobody talks about it anymore. Nobody, nobody shares clips of it anymore. But then he came back a few months ago with this Apple TV show, and I have no doubt they paying him at least 10 million bucks a year. And he went all in on wokeism. And he started lecturing white people and doing segments, dear white people and the rest of it. And it's like, man, you don't believe this. But what the problem is, and this is what happens with so many of the leftists, once you dance with this identity politics thing, 
Uh, John Stewart knows that he's a, at this point, a middle-aged, super rich, I'm sure he's worth over $100 million, uh, white guy. And he has danced with these ideas. He has run around calling all the Republicans racists and bigots and homophobes and everything else. So he has now set up a situation where his own audience, by the bad ideas that he spread, that I don't know that he fully believed all of them, and maybe it was just easy jokes or whatever, but he's basically in a hostage situation with his own audience. So I was pretty freaking thrilled to see that the show basically, I, I don't know if it was canceled already or he quit or, or they're just saying that nobody's watching or whatever it might be, but, no, but his day is done. That's okay. John, go. I think he has a farm somewhere in New York. It's like, go live on the farm, do your thing. That's fine. Uh, you were relevant for a while. You know, I, I'm relevant for a while. It is what it is. Um, but his turn at this whole thing is, is over. He, he, I, don't, I don't know what's in his heart, uh, but it's very disappointing to see what the results of that are. You know, Bill Maher is a sort of similar example of that. I think Bill is at least a little more sensible and has been trying to say the right things at the right time. But until he's willing to vote the right way or stop calling all the Republicans racist, then he's quite, not quite there either. Yeah, he's partway through that journey. And I think John Stewart's ratings have been terrible. That's where we are right now. But I don't think that means it would be canceled. I, I, would, be, I would be shocked if it was. I think Apple TV would probably give him a little more time. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in your book, which was so prescient, because – Netflix has been stumbling pretty badly of late, and you kind of lean into that in, in the book and, and the problems it's having. How do you think that Netflix can right its ship? And you're an entertainment person. You're a smart fellow. If you could whisper in the ear of a Netflix executive, what would you say to kind of make them uh, more profitable, better programming? Is there, is there sort of maybe a, a mindset change that they could do, or do you think it's sort of in a, in a, a downward spiral that won't stop? Yeah, I don't know that they can do it. I think it's a similar example as the John Stewart thing. They've now infected so much of the programming departments and really the, the entire company has been so infected by the woke stuff. Uh, you know, half the time you open up Netflix and, you know, they've got it's gay month and it's black month and half the programming is some sort of social justice thing. They have this massive partnership with Obama, obviously, to push leftist ideology. I, in the book, I go into the, the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, I mean, this is a guy who was pumping millions and millions of dollars into the reelection of Gavin Newsom in California against the, the recall. Obviously, I campaigned with Larry Elder, and I thought that the direction of California was going in a horrible uh, direction, and I ended up leaving California for Florida. Um, but I don't think that they are going to turn around. I think that anything that wokeness touches, it destroys. It gets us back to the alien part. It's, it's a parasite in the system. You can see it in Disney right now. Disney's lost about $41 billion in the last two months or so since they chose this fight with Ron DeSantis in Florida. And people have had it. So I think Netflix most likely will go down. You know, and, and by the way, you know, big structures always go down. Kodak was once a very important company in America. Uh, Enron was a very important company in America. Microsoft was a very important, you know, mon uh, monopoly in essence. That was a big lawsuit, you know, 30 years ago. So none of these things exist forever. And I, I think there's a great opportunity for people that, you know, are in the line of work that we're in uh, to create new things. And that's where the opportunity lies. But, you know, going to Netflix, if you're a young filmmaker, let's say, or you're, you're a television writer um, and you want to do something truly edgy and interesting and original, like you're probably not getting it on Netflix. Yeah, good point. Dave, before we let you go, a, a lot of sane Americans have been waiting for a, a moment, a sign, an indicator that this woke culture is in retreat. And then in recent weeks, you mentioned the Disney situation, talking about Netflix. Joe Rogan announced that he's got 2 million more subscribers rather than him going away. He seems to get stronger. And, of course, there's the Tesla guy who just bought 
Twitter and <laughs> wants to make it more free. It, it, you, I, I like to connect dots, and I think it's important to do so. Are these isolated cases, or do you, are you are you hopeful that there's something more here? No, Christian, I, th I think these things are connected. I, I said a couple of weeks ago, I think we're entering the post-woke world. I think this, this situation with the Supreme Court and the abortion leak uh, on this decision complicates things a lot because it's really going to get our eye off the ball. But I think you're totally right. We've had some major wins here. The, the DeSantis stuff in Florida is a major win. Elon Musk and Twitter is a major win. This 35-year-old Trump-appointed female Judge Mizell in Tampa who reversed the mask mandate is a major win. Things have been shifting. And as I said, now we have this X factor because of the everything's going to shift and focus on abortion, which is a real shame in many ways because there's so many positive markers right now. But I think we really can get out of this. I think people have to realize, I, I try not to be hyper-partisan, but I think at the moment people have to realize that you don't have to be a Republican, but you cannot be a Democrat, at least for now, if you care about freedom. And if you care about freedom, then vote for people who will at least slightly restrict the monster at the moment. Uh, who will slightly push things back to the states, who will slightly tax you a little bit less and demand that you be a little less brainwashed. That's at least a start at a political level, but the real, the real solution is up to you. I mean, figure out where you want to live, who you want to live with, the type of people you want to be around, the community that you want to live in. And if you do all those things, then as I say in the subtitle, you'll be able to thrive and not just survive, which is what most of us have sort of skated by uh, or skated on for the last couple of years. Yeah, I think we have much more power individually than we even realize if we just actually use it. It could come to, it could really save things. But uh, Dave, thank you for joining right on Hollywood. Dave's new book is Don't Burn This Country. And if you're feeling blue about the raging culture wars, this is the best tonic around. Just visit Amazon.com or any fine bookshop near you. And of course, watch The Rubin Report on YouTube or listen via your favorite podcast app. Either way, you'll get sane views for a crazy world. Dave, it's a real treat to talk to you. Uh, thank you for making Common Sense cool. I love it. Christian, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcasting family. Please like, share, subscribe, and do all the things on the platforms across the board to keep this show growing. We're not against skywriting or even some pushing some high school gossip, too, to spread the word. No shame here. Hope everyone has a great week. Be kind to one another. Let's do it all again next time. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.